You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. This episode is going to be a solo podcast by me, and it's actually going to be the first part in a series. So I was inspired by Pete doing Pete Ruins Exodus, and that's that's Pete's gig. He, he ruins books. But I'm going to call this Rediscovering Jonah. We're going to do a series on the book of Jonah, do a deep dive here, and it'll be a, a handful of episodes. I don't exactly know how long it will be, but it will be longer than, for those of you who've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, the first episode I did on Jonah. So, I'd ask those of you who have heard that to bear with me. There will be some overlap here in the first episode, but I want you to do like I tell my kids to do about the Rocky series. We're just going to treat it like it never happened, like we do with Rocky Five, right? We just go from four to Rocky Balboa. We just pretend that five never happened. So, I would encourage you to do that. There will be more here than even the first episode. There will be more even in this episode. And then we'll just go from there. So, we're going to take this first one here to talk about the big picture of the book. What kind of book is it? And tackle that one question that everyone asks, we got to get it out of the way at the front, is, is Jonah historically accurate? And I'm going to talk about why that's a bad question. And, uh, of course, that's what we're going to do. But then, uh, in subsequent episodes, again, a handful, one, two, three, I'm not sure, we're going to do a deeper dive into each one of the chapters and, and draw out some of the richer themes about this beautifully written, wonderful, messaged book called the Book of Jonah. And we'll just take it as it comes. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. So, th- just to set us up, I want to talk about the few reasons why I really like the book of Jonah and, and thought it was worth doing a series on. So, first, it's, it's personally significant for me. So, when I was a pastor, I shared this in that other episode, this was a significant book for me to get through my transition. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to go through a deconstruction period. I, I just would say it has an added layer of challenge when your paycheck depends on you not changing your mind about the Bible and what it is. And so, it was a particularly difficult time for me of how do I wrestle with being true to myself and the questions that I was asking, while also wanting to not damage anyone's faith and not bring the congregation kicking and screaming along with me in my journey, but letting them respecting their journey and their stories, while also wanting to be truthful about where I was and also be honest about what I was seeing in the text of the Bible. 
So, it was, it was a really confusing and challenging time for me. And the book of Jonah, it was one that I really grappled with during that time, resonated with and connected with, in, in addition to the book of Ecclesiastes, was also a real help for me in that time. So, it's personally significant. So, I have this, this heart for the book of Jonah, but not just that, not just personally, but I think also critically, it highlights some of the unhelpful practices that some Christians have when they read their Bibles. And we'll talk about some of that, some of that today, and some of that throughout this book. And thirdly, it's small enough to get our hands around and yet touches on some of the themes we find throughout the Bible. So, I think it's a really good book to focus on for a little bit to talk about things like repentance and what does it mean to be God's people and some of these bigger themes, theological themes that we find throughout the Bible. And maybe there's some relevancy for us but really want to highlight and talk about and focus on the book itself. So, this is the Bible for normal people after all. So, again, we'll start with the big picture, kind of what, what is the book about, and then we'll dive into each chapter from there and talk about some of the central themes and points. Of course, we won't get into everything because as small as this book is, which in English Bibles, it's a few pages. It's only four chapters. It doesn't take up much room at all. But you'd be amazed at the amount of articles and books full books, scholarly books written on just this book. There is a lot that we could cover, but it does really get into the weeds. We, we move out of Bible for normal people and into Bible for nerds pretty quickly, so we'll try to avoid that. But I do want to go into some more detail uh, throughout the series. So, let's start with this. What kind of book is Jonah? Jonah, I'm going to argue, is a satire or maybe a, a satirical parable is a better way of saying that. It's stylized fiction with a theological point. Now, it's important that we start with what kind of book Jonah is, because as one of my old professors used to say all the time, that is that genre triggers reading strategy. All that means is we have to figure out what kind of book it is first, so that we know how to read the book. So, genre matters. And that's important because uh, there's a debate in the book of Jonah or on the book of Jonah between people, especially in more lay circles and and pastoral circles on whether Jonah is a historically accurate book or not, or is it a different kind of genre that's less focused on history? And of course, I'm going to say it's less focused on history. It's not trying to argue in uh, historically accurate ways. That's not the point of the book. It has a theological point. And there's some stylized fiction. There's a lot of reasons why I'm going to argue that it's satire. So, let's go through some of these reasons. First, if we compare it to other prophets, we see some stark differences, right? So, uh, and if you look in your, in your Bibles, the book of Jonah is right smack there in what's called the book of the Twelve. It's the, it's the minor prophets is another name for them. And they name... Those books tend to name the kings, the historical situation, kind of situate it in historical, with historical details. But with Jonah, all that's left out. It's almost like trying to be this universalizable fairy tale. In some ways, it reads like the book of Job. So, if you read Job, there's not a lot of context clues for when it's written, where it's written. You know, there's, it doesn't necessarily even situate it in Israel. So, Israel isn't even mentioned in the book of Jonah. So, there's a sense of universality to it. No names, there's no dates, but it does have a lot of narrative details. 
it, it describes things in unique ways, in very colorful ways, in very stylized ways. So, that's one reason. When we compare it to the other prophets, it leads us to think that this isn't the same kind of book. It also ignores the strained relationship between Assyria and Israel. And if you read other uh, prophetic books, Amos, Joel, those around Jonah, you'll see there is a direct connection between the sinfulness of Israel and these foreign nations who are going to be agents of God's judgment. And we don't get any of that in the book of Jonah. There's not even a mention of Assyria as a people group. We have Nineveh, which is a city. And interestingly enough, which points another reason why it may not be helpful to read it as historically accurate, is Nineveh is said to have a king, but cities usually don't have kings. States, nation states meaning countries, they have kings, but in this story, Nineveh, the city, has a king. And the, the king is not named, it's just the king of Nineveh. Then another reason, if we compare it to the other prophets that we find, other minor prophet books, the Book of the Twelve, are, are largely poetic in style. So, if you read in your Bible, you'll see a lot of formatting that looks like poetry. And Jonah is largely going to be narrative, it's going to be a story. And uh, another example of this when we compare it to the prophets is that the other minor prophets are filled with God's words to the people. And so, the, the prophet is a messenger of this message. But Jonah is, is largely devoid of God's words. We actually only have four instances of God speaking. All of them actually are to Jonah. We, we don't actually have the message that God wanted Jonah to share directly from God, which is very different than, again, if you read the books around Jonah in your Bible, you'll say the message from the Lord, and then it gives the message that the prophet is presumably sharing to the people. But we don't, we don't have this here. We have four instances of God speaking in general, and they're actually all to Jonah. In, in verse 2 of chapter 1, God says to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And then in chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time after, you know, he goes through the whole fish ordeal. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. But we don't actually hear from God's mouth what that message is. All we hear is in chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah giving this message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. And then in chapter 4, we have a dialogue between Jonah and God. And God says, is it right for you to be angry? And then a few verses later, asks again, is it right for you to be angry? And then we have this little commentary from God. This is the longest speaking gig that God gets in the book of Jonah. The Lord says, you have been concerned about a plant, this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So, God does get the last word. Those are the final words of the book. But that's really all that we have in, in the book. It just reads very differently than the other prophets. So, why is it in With the Prophets is a good question. Well, in some ways, it still is prophetic narrative. If you read the stories of, say, Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 5, you'll see some similarities in this. And remember, in the Jewish Bible, we think of uh, Samuel and Kings as historical books. 
in in Christianity, but for Judaism, they are actually part of the prophetic corpus. They're part of the prophet books. They're actually called the former prophets because they focus on Elijah and Elisha, the prophets and others around the kings. So, just remember in the Jewish way of organizing the books, the narratives of Elijah and Elisha would actually be prophet as well because they're uh, about the prophet. And that's what Jonah is more. It's about the prophet. So, at the very least, it plays off of what people would have expected from other prophetic books. And that's what makes it satire. So, satire is taking a form that we would recognize and turning it on its head. And in a lot of ways, this is prophetic satire. So, it starts out the same way as most of the prophetic books. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That's the common context clue or a genre clue for being prophetic. But then the very next statement makes us think that something else is going on because Jonah arises and we think he's going to go do what God has asked him to do, but he doesn't. He runs away. So, now we know something is up. This is where the satirical clues begin. Right? We start the way we expect, but then by the second verse, we know something's awry. In this way, you know, in, in a lot of ways, actually, Jonah is painted as the anti-prophet. So, if we look at, say, the book of Hosea, which is uh, there right around the book of Jonah in our Bibles, the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Chapter 1. And he does it without question. And so, Hosea goes and marries this prostitute. You know, name your, and then later, go to your uh, wayward wife who has committed adultery and be there for her, re-engage with her, have some reconciliation with her. And he does. So, we have this contrast even with the book of Hosea. And I put that because those are some extreme examples of what God would require of a prophet just to get the message across to God's people. And Hosea just does it right away. And then Jonah, all Jonah is asked to do is to go and proclaim this message uh, to Assyria, essentially, to Nineveh, and he runs away. Now, we're not not sure why at this point. Maybe for those who would be reading this story, and we'll talk a little bit about the date of this, they would have in mind, well, of course Jonah wouldn't want to go to Nineveh because the Assyrians were known for their brutality. And if you were an enemy of the Assyrians, you wouldn't want to get caught up in preaching a message of repentance or whatever it is, the message that needs to be shared if you're an enemy of Israel, because who knows what's going to happen to you. So, a lot of people might have assumed it's because he was afraid. Later in the book, we'll see maybe that's not the case. But it plays again off what people would have expected from the prophetic books. Now, another reason why I would not put it in the history category, but put it in the satire category or put it uh, as different than these other prophetic books is the literary style, the way it's written. So, if you read carefully, and it's only two pages, so you can read it carefully, you'll see that there's all kinds of fun stuff going on here. So, let's talk about a few of, we'll talk more about these fun things as we go through the book, but just for argument's sake, let's just talk about a few that help us know we're in parable territory. So, The first is we have uh, these rhetorical devices like personification. So, if you remember back to 10th grade English, when you learned about personification, that's giving inanimate objects human-like qualities. So, we have this interesting thing in the first chapter, and this ties to the theme that we'll see in the first chapter of who really is a God-fearing person or even a God-fearing thing. So, for instance, in chapter 1, the ship is given human verbs. So, the only time an inanimate object is given this idea of thinking about or reckoning 
is here in chapter 1, verse 5, when the ship reckons or thinks about breaking up. And then a few verses later, the, the sea stops its rage. And again, this word rage is often reserved for the rage of a person, a king in Second Chronicles. So, it stops its rage. So, in this way, in some personified way, the ship is afraid of God, the sea is enraged, and yet we have Jonah not really being bothered by all this. He's asleep. But this personification gives us this stylistic sense. This is a satire. It's, it's humorous. When you're reading this, you're thinking, what, what do you mean the ship is thinking about breaking up or considering breaking up? Ships don't consider things. And the same with the, the, the sea. We also have a lot of hyperbole, which again, sorry to bring you back to English class, but hyperbole is this exaggeration or exa- way of exaggerating things. And the way that the book of Jonah does this is everything is great or everything is big on a big scale. So, we see this throughout a lot in chapter one. So, Nineveh is a great city. And the way you, the way you uh, give hyperbole in Hebrew is you double it. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but you double uh, the word and that makes it, you know, exceedingly great or things like that. So, we have Nineveh as a great city and Yahweh hurls a great wind. There's a great storm. The men don't just throw the cargo. They hurl the cargo. They were extremely frightened. There's a great storm. Uh, Jonah gets hurled into the sea. The men don't just fear Yahweh, but they fear Yahweh greatly. Yahweh doesn't appoint just a fish, but a great fish to swallow Jonah. And then we still have Nineveh being described multiple times, even in chapter 3, as a great city, three days journey. So, there's, it, it's, it's a very localized tale that's given these details that make it feel grand. And that's something we would expect in, in a fiction story. So, the literary style, the humor, the irony, which we'll talk about more, Lastly, I just want to mention the structure of the, of the story is very well crafted. It's these four vignettes that we've identified mostly in the chapters. Although well, English gets it a little wrong, I think. But we have kind of Jonah and the pagan sailors in chapter one, or, or Jonah running away from God's call. And then we have Jonah and the fish in chapter two. We have Jonah proclaiming the message in chapter three. And then we have the aftermath of Jonah and the plant or, you know, Jonah's dialogue with God in chapter four. So, it's very stylized. It's, it's very neat. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. So, what kind of book is this? It's satirical parable. That's important, again, because too many people focus on this question. Is Jonah telling us a historical account? We don't know for certain whether it is or not, but all of these clues about genre tell us that it isn't. And if we spend our time trying to prove that it is historically accurate or trying to prove how big our faith is by proving that a fish can swallow a grown man, my worry or my concern is that we actually miss the point of the book. To respect biblical books, we have to ask what kind of book it is. And we would completely miss the impact and lessons of something like Aesop's fables 
if we spent all of our time and energy trying to prove that hares and tortoises can really talk and they can really race each other. So, I don't think, frankly, it matters one way or the other if you think the stories actually took place or not, as long as you recognize that the value of the book isn't about its historicity, but it's in the message it's trying to tell through this humorous, critical account of this character named Jonah. So, I'm, I'm belaboring this because in my tradition, there was this implicit reading strategy. I don't know if you've encountered this, but there was this implicit reading strategy when it came to the Bible that the most faithful reading is the one where the most miraculous thing happened. There was an example in for me that was poignant because that got pointed out quite a bit. That, say, like in Exodus, the Bible itself says that there was an east wind that came and pushed back the waters so that the Hebrews could, could cross on dry land. But if you pointed that out, it was almost like you had a lack of faith. Right? The proper reading is that it wasn't a natural occurrence at all. It was God's actual hand in some supernatural way coming and pushing the water back where everyone would have just said, wow, you know, what is this hand coming down from heaven? But that's not actually even what the Bible itself says. The Bible says there's an east wind that came. But these naturalistic ways of reading the Bible, we were, in my tradition, very reactive because a lot of quote-unquote liberal scholars were trying to demythologize and take all the miracles out of the Bible, and which is fine. I think they got some of that wrong, too. They're, you know, Those scholars tended to have an agenda, a naturalistic agenda, but then this overreaction actually causes us to miss what the Bible is actually saying. So, in the same way here in Jonah, I think to suggest that this is a parable and not history for my tradition growing up was because I would have lacked faith that God can have a fish swallow a man. But I actually just find that reading disrespectful to the Bible because the most faithful reading, I think, is the one that respects the original author, that does the due diligence to find out what kind of book they were trying to write. What are the context clues telling us? So, for me, reading it as satire says nothing about your faith or what you think God is or isn't capable of. Greetings, normal people. I'm Alexander Denzel Coward from New Jersey. One of my favorite things about this podcast is the willingness Pete and Jared have in engaging perspectives that are new to them. Their lively discussions often leave me with more questions than answers, but their humor and honesty remind me of just how normal these questions are. If you found value in what you've learned from this podcast, then I encourage you to support us by going to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. For as little as $1 per month, you can empower a message that is changing lives and opinions around the world. I would also like to recognize the producers group. It is their support and feedback which ensures the quality content which is delivered every episode. So a shout out goes to Kevin Marshall, Caleb Needens, Christy Florence, J.E. Burke, Eric Latassi, Edward Glasscock, David Krober, and Logan Jansen. Thank you for listening and for your continued support. Now back to the show. All right, so there's one more thing I want to address before we jump into the details of the book related to reading it as history. Some people want to insist it's historical because Jesus refers to Jonah in Matthew 12. So, in Matthew 12, verses 38 and following, I forget how far it is, but 
uh, Jesus mentions Jonah. And so, some people say, well, it has to be a historical book if Jesus mentions it. So, in Matthew 12, I'm just going to read a few of these verses. It says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none of you will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Now again, not to get into Matthew 12, but if the whole point of Matthew 12 is to prove that Jonah is historically accurate, we miss the profound statement that that Jesus is making about his generation and the people and religious leaders around him about repentance. But again, that's beside the point. There's just two quick points I want to make about this. The first one is it makes no sense to me why it needs to be historical just because Jesus mentions it. We do this all the time, right? We wish, we talk about wishing we could go on an adventure like Frodo Baggins. I have used in some of my work references to Michael Scott from The Office when I'm giving management advice. Isn't that the kind of the point of fiction? I think it's the, the point of fiction is to relate to our real lives in profound ways. So, I'm not sure why Jesus would be exempted from using this thousands of years old way of relating fiction to our stories and our emotions and our communities and our societies. And I don't, I don't see the, the disconnect there. But more importantly, I think the more conclusive reason why this doesn't hold water for me, is that Jesus himself references a historical figure in one of his parables. In Luke chapter 16, we actually have the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. So, if you don't know the story, a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus, who lived outside the rich man's gate, are going about their business, and they both die. And we have this in verse 22 and following. The time came when the beggar dies, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So, he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, and on and on. He and Abraham continue to have a conversation. But the point is, we have Jesus here himself creating a parable, using a figure from the past and putting new words and deeds into his mouth here to make a theological point. So, Jesus himself is is doing it. Now, some people might argue, no, what Jesus is doing is telling a historically accurate account of the afterlife. But that doesn't seem, again, we have to go back to context clues, we have to do all this over again. doesn't seem that that's the direction that this is pointing. Jesus is known for his parables. He tells all kinds of parables. doesn't make any sense why this would be any different. So, I think it's fine that Jesus references Jonah. I don't think it has to be historically accurate just because Jesus references it. He brings in 
Abraham into one of his parables. I think, in fact, I would say, in these few hundred years around when Jesus is born, it was a pretty common occurrence that you would, because of it gives authority, it gives some weight, it also makes a connection with your tradition so that people recognize the characters and the stories. It was actually getting to be pretty common that you would take these characters and you would put new stories to them. And you would put words in their mouth and they would give certain messages that you would want to share. I think that was a pretty common thing if you read other Second Temple Juda, uh, Judaism uh, works in, in the Second Temple period. So, there we go. All right, so just to round out our big picture stuff, let's end just with a little word on who wrote the book, when, who was the you know, historical Jonah that the author uses here, I would argue, as a foil for this work of fiction. We can tackle the author first because that's an easy one. We have no idea. We don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. I mean, some for some reason, I don't know why, but historically, when we want to attribute something to an author, we don't know who wrote it. We like pick the main character and think that they wrote it. So, you know, with Moses and the, and the Torah, we think Moses wrote a lot of the Torah because it's about Moses. But it seems interesting to me that that would be the case. Uh, it's just because Jonah is the main character doesn't mean Jonah wrote it. In fact, it would be weird, I think, uh, that we would have the person who's the main character be actually the, the author of the story. That seems actually strange to me. So, we have no idea who wrote Jonah. Now, when it was written is a little trickier because like, we, we can't be certain, we, but we do have some ideas, at least on, on when. You know, we can make some educated guesses. So, given the themes of the book, it was likely written after the exile, the Babylonian exile, so after about 516 BCE. But we also know it was written before, so it was written after the exile, but we also know it was written before about 190, uh, because the book of Jonah is mentioned in another book called Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, which this Ecclesiasticus was composed around 190. So, it's probably written between, say, 200 BCE and 500 BCE, is likely when it was written, kind of around the, the Persian period. Also note that when it was written is different than when it was set, right? It's likely set at an earlier time than when it was written. And this is pretty simple for why scholars think that, and that is that the character is, of course, Jonah, son of Amittai, who was a real person according to the Book of Kings. So, we have one mention of Jonah in the Book of Kings, and uh, he's only mentioned this one time. It's in Second Kings 14, and he's associated with Jeroboam II, who turns out to be one of the most evil kings in Israelite history. So, you know, perhaps this association with Jeroboam, uh, along with the lack of any more details about Jonah given in our Bible, is what led the author to pick him as the antihero in this, in this satire. So, I just wanted to read the, the only verse we have of Jonah in our Bible in 2 Kings 14 in verse 25. He was the one who restored, talking about Jeroboam now, Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hafer. There is then two contexts that were talking about here briefly, and I don't think it's worth going to a lot of detail, but it's worth mentioning that there are two contexts. So, we have the context in which the book of Jonah is written, but then there's also the context in which the book is set. And that's important because we have to assume 
that people would have had the knowledge of what transpired and happened historically between when Jonah was set and when it was written. So, we have a lot of background information that everyday people would at least be aware of. Uh, So, when the book was written, we talked about that, between 500 and 200, and this was a time of relative uh, peace for Jews. And we have this context between 500 and 200, relative peace. This is after Cyrus has come and, and the Persian period begins after the Babylonians. So, we have the Assyrians who are the world, imp- you know, emperor's uh, empire, and then we have the Babylonians, and then we have the Persians in about 539, Cyrus comes and brings, uh, reestablishes uh, Jewish people in the land. And then we have uh, around 330 or so, Alexander the Great takes over. So, we have this time of Greek rule, and then, of course, we'll have Roman rule after that. But that's kind of when the book was written. Now, uh, when the book is set, it's a very different historical context. So, it's just, just worth, worth, worth mentioning this historical context of when the book was set, because we talked about Second Kings. So, there's this King Jeroboam who's in charge in Israel in the north. At the same time, there's another king in the south called King Uzziah. So, just so you remember that there were two kingdoms that split off from each other. There is Judah in the south and then Israel in the north. They have two different kings. And Jeroboam II is in charge. Now, it's interesting in 2 Kings, this, when he's ruling probably about 750 BCE or so, Israel is in a time of, of prosperity. And so, it's just interesting. The only reason I bring it up is because Jonah is prophesying in a time of prosperity in Second Kings, when we're increasing the borders and things are going well for God's people. And there is a, a sense in which God will always be on our side, kind of regardless of our ethics and morals and obedience to God's commands. And we see this in the book of Jeremiah, for example, where there's just this sense of prosperity and nothing can touch us and God's people are invincible because we are God's people after all. And that's important for the themes of the book of Jonah. That's why I mention it. Now, if you were to go over to the book of Amos, Amos is prophesying about the same time as the historical Jonah is alive, this 750 or so period. And Amos paints a very different picture and says, all of our ethical misdeeds and our disobedience for God's commands is going to lead to a lot of destruction. And of course, within the next 15 years, we have the Assyrians who come and start to dole out, we might say, God's judgment. They start to deport the Israelites from the north. Then by 722, the north has completely been sieged. And so, this juxtaposition of Amos and Jonah is helpful. Again, it may just point to why the author of Jonah picks Jonah to be the messenger of his message in the book. So, let's jump to the book now of Jonah, and we start with the first chapter. And it's so short, so I may even just read large portions here because it it really won't take long. But I just want to point out a few things here in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, if we're talking about big themes. So, the first big theme here is about repentance and the relationship of God's people to 
not God's people. And for the sake of our time here, I'm going to use the words Jews and Gentiles to represent God's people and not God's people. I know in some ways, depends on when we're talking about historically framed, we could talk about Hebrews, we could talk about Israelites, we could talk about Jews. So, I'm going to use the word Jews and Gentiles because that's an important theme here in the book of Jonah is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And that's an important theme here in the first chapter. We get a little taste. We haven't been introduced necessarily to this complexity quite yet in the book, but we get hints of it with the pagan sailors. And in relationship to the pagan sailors, we also have this Jonah's relationship with God. And that's represented through this descent that we'll see all the way through chapter two, but begins here. And we see it in the first word of the Lord that God, uh, the first word of the Lord given to Jonah. So, in verse two, it says, go at once to Nineveh, that great city. Now, the word in Hebrew is actually two words for go. It's arise and go, kum lake, arise and go. So, it's an, it's up, get up and go. But in English, I think it's clunky to have two different words. So, it usually just says go at once or go, but it's technically arise and go. And this is important because we want to be mindful throughout these first two chapters of when things are going up and down. And I can let the cow out of the bag a little bit. This is the only time it goes up for quite some time. So, Jonah's disobedience is leading him down the wrong path, literally, geographically, and then we'll see metaphorically in chapter two. So, it's a rise and go, and we're hopeful because in verse three, it actually begins with a rise, or so he arose. So, it actually starts with another upward, and we get very, it's, it's a dramatic moment. So, Jonah got up. Just like in Hosea, it says, Hosea, go do this, and the next verse is, okay, so Hosea goes and does that. So, we expect that. Okay, go at once to Nineveh. So, we think, the readers would think Jonah then gets up and goes, but it says he gets up and flees. And this is the dramatic moment. Oh no, something is different. Something is awry. We're surprised by this action of Jonah. So, he flees from the Lord's service and he goes down. So, that's our first word, down uh, to Joppa to see if he can uh, go on a ship to, to Tarshish. So, he goes and then he goes down onto the boat, of course, and the Lord casts a mighty wind upon the sea and a great tempest comes upon it, and the ship, again, is in danger of breaking up. It's reckoning, it's thinking about breaking up. It's afraid of the tempest that God has brought. And in their fright, the sailors cry out, each to his own God. That's important because we have to establish that these are pagans. These aren't Yahweh worshipers yet. And they flung the ship's cargo overboard to make it lighter for them. All this chaos is happening. In the meantime, Jonah had gone down. There's another word. Gone down into the hold where he lay down and falls asleep. The captain comes over and cries out, how could you be sleeping so soundly? Up. So, there's an upward. He's calling Jonah to rise up, rise to the occasion. You call upon your God. Perhaps the God will be kind to us and we will not perish. Now, that's an interesting phrase because later we're going to be talking about, this brings up the theme of God's uh, kindness. What does God's kindness mean, and how does it relate to justice? And how is that fair, and how does this all work? But it's, again, the captain who thinks that God will be kind and hopes that we will not perish. So, 
the, the captain's using kind of lo- Yahweh language, biblical language here. Then the men said to one another, let us cast lots, find out on whose account this misfortune has come upon us. They cast the lots. Of course, it falls to Jonah. They say to Jonah, tell us, what's your business? Where have you come from? I am a Hebrew, he says. Interesting use of language, Hebrew. He replied, it kind of calls us, harkens us back to an earlier time to call himself a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made both sea and land. Now, this is, is the beginning of a lot of creation language. Now, there's lots of things that God could be known by, but here, it's the one who made both sea and land, the God who's in control of, of course, the stormy sea. But this is going to give us a clue to another theme. So, one theme is this relationship between Jews and Gentiles, right? But another theme that we're going to see throughout the book of Jonah is God's sovereignty. Who's really in control here? Who, who gets to control things? Who's in charge? And kind of like the book of Job, there's going to be a question. Well, it's really going to be God questioning. Who really is in charge here? It's a rhetorical question, of course, because God is sovereign. God is the one who made both land and sea. And once he said that, it says, the men were greatly terrified. So, at first, because of the sea being stormy and raging, they're afraid. But when they hear who Jonah's God is, they are greatly afraid. And they ask him, what have you done? And when the men learned that he was fleeing from the service of the Lord, they said to him, what do we have to do to get this to calm down? Because it's gotten more and more stormy. Heave me overboard, they say. Nevertheless, that's a really important nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to regain the shore, but they couldn't for the sea was growing more and more stormy about them. So, again, these pagans are risking their own lives to save this stranger. They keep rowing because they didn't want Jonah to die. Oh, please, they finally say to Yahweh. Now they're talking directly to Yahweh. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Don't hold us guilty of killing an innocent person. Now, of course, Jonah's innocence is questionable here since he did flee from Yahweh. But it's important, again, that we see this juxtaposition of the conversion throughout this process of the pagan sailors who don't know Yahweh at all. They're worshiping their own gods. And by the end, they are following God's commands. And then we end with they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows after they hurled Jonah over and the calm sea calmed down. Now, again, if you're trying to make this historically accurate, it seems interesting because you offer sacrifices and make vows in the temple. You don't do it necessarily on a boat. I wouldn't generally think that you would want to offer sacrifices with fire on a wooden boat in the middle of the sea, but if it's not supposed to be historically accurate, and you're just trying to make a theological point about the conversion of the pagan sailors and the deconversion of Jonah. Jonah's descent, he's going down, and the pagan sailors are becoming Yahweh worshipers, and this is going to blow minds. How can it be? 
How can it be that the Jew is acting very non-Jewish and the Gentile is acting very Jewish and it's blurring the lines here? And this gives us again a preamble of where we're going when we talk about Nineveh. So, that's the first chapter. We have the deconversion here and the descent of Jonah and the conversion of the pagans. So, they offer sacrifices to the Lord and they make vows, which that gives us a little foretaste of what Jonah is going to do in his repentance in chapter 2. We have Jonah doing the same thing in chapter 2, where at the end of his prayer, he says, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will perform, meaning he's reconverted. He's going to offer sacrifice and make vows. And we'll talk about Jonah's reconversion next time, but I wanted to point out that it's the same language. So, it's blurring these lines between Jews and Gentiles and what it means to have God's favor and what it means to be God's people. And this could be pretty upsetting for people who maybe have a certain way of thinking about what it means to be God's people and how we then treat other people. Not even yet to our enemies, we're just simply talking about the pagans at this point. All right, well, hopefully this has been a helpful introduction to the book of Jonah. Next time, we're going to jump into chapter two, but we'll just see where it goes. We'll see how long we want to take, maybe just a two-part series, maybe three. We'll see. But I hope this has been good, introducing these themes and also talking about what kind of book the book of Jonah is and how we can use the things we talked about here when we're reading other books of the Bible as well. All right, thank you so much. We'll see you next time.